Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of ancient death rituals. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today's episode is actually a listener suggestion. Got a suggestion on Instagram to do an episode about cemeteries. Wait, wait. I thought we were doing an episode about baby metal. We can do that. Should we just scrap all the notes we have and just ramble on about baby metal for we an could, hour? We could probably talk easy for an hour. Yeah. We'll save it for next time. What's the latest news on uh, Yui Metal, though? What's she up to? I think she's hoping to debut as a solo act. She still hasn't put anything out solo? Not that I'm aware of. Hmm. It always takes time over there. You can never just release yeah. something. Yeah, got to be careful. Got to make everything perfect. Yeah, they got to slowly build it up for a few years. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway, we're not talking about baby metal. We're not only talking about cemeteries either. We, we expanded that topic because I don't think maybe there's not quite enough specifically about cemeteries to fill a whole episode. Or maybe there is actually. There's kind of a lot of stuff. There probably is. We just wanted to research all the yeah. rest. I mean, we'd be leaving so much out, all the traditions surrounding death, if we only focused on cemeteries. So we're talking about all that stuff. What happens after you die in Japan? All the way from the moment of death up to you're in the ground, and even years later. I mean, this stuff just goes on and on. There's so much ritual involved in this kind of thing. There sure is. And death is a big industry in Japan as well, as it is elsewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of money flying around. We'll talk about that more later. For sure. One fact that I found interesting was that 99.81% of Japanese are cremated upon death. That stat is from 2007, isn't it? Yeah. Because I found one from 2009. Is it going up or down? 99.9% now. Wow. That's everybody. That's just everybody. That's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later and the reasons for that. Yeah. But in general, most funerals in Japan include a wake, that cremation, a burial in a family grave, and then a memorial service, and there are even more memorial services that come after that. So that's kind of going to be our outline for this episode. I'm going to cover each of those in depth. Yeah. But I have another stat for you right now. Hit me. 91% of funerals are conducted as Buddhist ceremonies. Yeah, that is interesting. In a country that it's like Buddhist for this, maybe Shinto for this other thing, they kind of mix and match and flow in and out and together. Mm -hmm. But 91% was it? Mm -hmm. Do it as a Buddhist ritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we're going to see a lot of Buddhist ideas come into all parts of this whole process. Yeah, definitely. Let's get into some history. Yeah. Throughout Japanese history, famous leaders have been often buried in tombs. Mm -hmm. The oldest known burial chamber is from around 220 to 230 CE in Sakurai, which is in Nara Prefecture. They don't know who that tomb had in it, though. Around 300 CE, they started using these keyhole-shaped burial mounds called kohun, And these things are kind of awesome. They are, I mean, literally like a keyhole shape, like you got this round thing at the top and then a little, you know, think of like a circle with a triangle stuck into it at the bottom, right? Keyhole shape. It's keyhole if you're looking from above, like a view from the sky. Right, right. 
So if you're like flying over it, you, you would look down and see this giant piece of land shaped like a keyhole, and it's surrounded by a moat a lot of the time, or it could be constructed on a hill too. And they're huge. I mean, they're enormous. This is like a big, big chunk of land. The largest one is in Sakai, which is near Osaka, and it's 486 meters long. It's just insanely huge. Yeah, that's like half a kilometer. That's massive. Yeah. Wow. For one person. Yeah. (laughs) Got to be pretty important to take up all that land just for yourself. That keyhole shape, the tomb is always in the circle part on the top. It's like, why they add the triangle? Like, there's so much extra work. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows. I'm sure they had some reason, some symbolism or something there. Yeah. Yeah, those are from pretty long ago. It was as early as the 6th century when they started moving away from that and used round or square mounds instead. Okay. And right around that time, Buddhism came to Japan, of course. And with Buddhism, the use of those burial mounds eventually died out. And those Buddhist traditions slowly took their place. Yeah, the Japanese funerals and death rituals of today mostly come from the Soto Zen style of Buddhism. Yeah. From medieval-ish times. Right. Zen came to Japan in the 12th century. But still, up until the Edo period, which began in 1603, for commoners, disposal of dead bodies was still left entirely to the family. You know, like it always goes, the customs come over from China with Buddhism, but it's only the rich people that really get involved with that stuff early on. Yeah. So commoners would still either bury people in shallow communal burial pits, like you just keep using the same land, just pile the bodies in there, or they would dump them by the bank of a river. That sounds awful. Yeah, not, I don't know. I mean, personally, I don't care what happens to me after I die, but... Having bodies sitting by the bank of the river, I guess. Yeah. Not great to be living around. I don't care either. I just hope my body doesn't like poison a river that somebody's drinking out of or something. Sure. So it wasn't until the Edo period when common burial customs started to look a lot more like they do today. Probably because the Edo period is when Buddhism was officially endorsed, right, by the Tokugawa shogunate. There's your Tokugawa reference. Yep. Got to get it in there. <laughs> Yeah, I saw there was a Zen master, Keizan, who encouraged Zen monks to go out into the countryside and perform funeral services for the lay people. Mm -hmm. And that might have had something to do with help spreading the practices among everybody. It's not just for the monks and the nobles anymore. Yep. But people still weren't being cremated at this point. Until the early 1900s, most bodies were still buried, and it was only rich people that were getting cremated. Cremation became more popular after World War II because it was considered clean and efficient. I can't disagree. And some local governments even ban burials. You have to get cremated. Okay. I also wanted to mention in this section that traditionally, professions relating to death were considered unclean. And we mentioned this in an episode we did about taiko drums because the drum heads are made out of leather, which comes from dead animals. So this class of people in these professions relating to death were known as the burakumin, and of course, those were the people that were dealing with all this, all the burials and the cremation, all the stuff around death. And as we talked about in that other episode, they are still discriminated against even today. 
Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. Got anything else for history, Paul? Nope. Alrighty then. So what happens immediately after you die if you're a Japanese person, Paul? Your relatives are going to moisten your lips with water. Mm-hmm. They have a disposable chopstick. They tie some cotton to the end, dip that in water, wet the lips. And this would be just at the time of death. It used to be just before the death. And the idea here is, is something called water of the last moment, or matsugo no mizu. And this is the deceased's last sip of water as a human and their first sip of water as an ancestor. Like you go from just being a normal human to this new status as an ancestor. And they actually used to use a brush, like a calligraphy brush, to kind of paint the water onto the lips. Interesting. Yeah. What else happens, Paul? Oh, they decorate with flowers and incense and a candle is placed next to the deceased bed. And if the home has a Shinto shrine, they're going to cover that with white paper to keep out the impure spirits of the dead. Relatives and authorities are going to be informed of the death. They're going to issue a death certificate. Got to get that official stuff out of the way. And then typically the eldest son is in charge of arranging the funeral, which is normally held at a Buddhist temple, so we'll have to contact them. And then the body is going to be washed and orifices blocked with cotton or gauze. And then there might be an encoffining ritual that can happen where they dress and prepare the body and place it in a coffin. Now that doesn't happen so often anymore. It's not as common as it used to be. Mostly you'll just see that ritual in uh, rural areas and even then only rarely. But if you want to see what this might look like, there's actually a great movie called Departures. It's a Japanese movie about, basically this guy responds to an ad for a job and it just says it's working with departures. And he's like, oh, what does that mean? Does that mean I'm like a travel agent? Like I'm, you know, sending people off on an airplane somewhere? But then he finds out, oh, departures, like departing this world, <laughs> you know? But re- really great movie. They, they go into, you know, a lot of these rituals and they show like how much respect is shown to the body. It's pretty cool. So if the deceased person is a female... They're going to be dressed in a white kimono. And if it's a male, they're going to be dressed in a suit or maybe a kimono as well. Mm -hmm. And makeup may be applied to make them look beautiful in death, I guess. Hopefully more like they were when they were alive. Give them a little color. Yeah. And if they're wearing a kimono, of course, we've mentioned before in the podcast, the kimono will be folded right over left, which is only done after death. A living person will always be folding it left over right. Yep. And then the body is put on dry ice in a casket. And you might put other things in the casket with them, such as burnable items that the deceased was fond of. I saw cigarettes and candy as examples. Yep. And then the casket is placed on an altar for the wake. And they're going to point its head north or west. So west is like a second best choice. Yeah, I saw that. Maybe if your altar is just not facing the right direction or something. Yeah. There's apparently some Buddhist symbolism there in what direction it's pointing. Yeah. So now, the casket's ready for a wake. A tsuya. 
which happens at a relative's home, because they don't have special funeral homes for that like they do in the U.S. All funeral guests are going to wear black. Men wear black suits with white shirts, black ties, and women wear either black dresses or black kimonos. And people attending a wake offer condolence money to the host or hostess in special envelopes. Yeah, like whenever you're giving somebody money in Japan, and there are a lot of different occasions for that, they always have special envelopes. And there's like a certain type of string that's supposed to be tied in a certain way. Yeah. And like special colors for different occasions. So in this, in this occasion, you would have black and white string kind of stuff wrapped in a bow on your envelope. Yeah, they're always like just the size of a bill. Mm-hmm. So you just stuff a bunch of bills in there. Yep. People might give between three and 30,000 yen, depending on how close they were to the deceased and maybe how much money they have. Yeah. Guests are also going to be carrying Buddhist prayer beads, known as juzu. So what does the wake actually look like once it gets started, Paul? A Buddhist priest is going to chant sections of a sutra, and family members will each offer incense three times to the incense urn that's in front of the deceased. Yeah, so there's going to be immediate family up front going to that urn, and then there might be another urn behind the family members for all the other guests to go up to. Yep, they'll be doing the same thing, just behind the immediate family. Right. So the wake ends once the priest has completed the sutra. Each departing guest is then given a gift, which has a value that's supposed to be about half or a quarter of the condolence money received from this guest. And after the wake, the closest relatives might stay and keep vigil with the deceased overnight, like in the same room. And I think I actually have seen this in a manga. And I think it was a horror manga, a Junji Ito <laughs> manga. Like grandpa died and they had him sleeping in his futon in his room like normal. And the rest of the family is in there sleeping next to him on the floor. Yeah. And yeah, then some Pretty creepy stuff happens, I bet. Yeah, I'm sure he like came back to life or something. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> so usually the very next day after the wake comes the funeral, the kokubetsushiki. So the start is similar to the wake. People are going to offer incense while a priest chants a sutra. But I thought this was really interesting. They give the deceased person a new name, a new Buddhist name, because they don't want that spirit to be called back every time somebody calls out their name or even just talks about them, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And the length of the name might depend on the size of the donation to the temple. So if you give them a million yen, they're going to give you a really fancy name. Yeah, it's supposed to be based on the virtue of the person's life, how long their name is. Sure, but sure. You, you stroke a check for a million yen, they're getting a long name. Yeah. No matter who it is. I saw this as actually somewhat controversial because some temples would even put pressure on families to buy a more expensive name. Yeah, didn't you even love Grandpa? I know, right? Not even going to pony up the million yen to give him the best name for the afterlife? Yeah, I feel like that kind of thing is really prevalent, probably in this kind of industry all over the world. You know, I've definitely heard in the U.S. 
There are funeral homes that are just putting tons of pressure on people like, you need to buy the very best box to put your loved one in into the ground because anything else is disrespecting them or something. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Super shady. Yeah. They're actually, if you want to look more into this, I know there are videos on YouTube of people that work in the industry that are trying to reveal all the shady stuff that goes on. So if, you know, if you're unlucky enough that, you know, you have to be the one planning all this stuff, if someone close to you has passed away, I would say look up those videos and just be careful because there are a lot of people that will take advantage of you in the darkest times of your life, you know, and that's pretty messed up. Yep. Anyway, let me step off my soapbox here. <laughs> and okay, at the end of the ceremony, guests and family can come up and put flowers in the casket around the deceased's head before the casket is sealed. And then they're going to carry it to a hearse, which will bring it to the crematorium. Now it's time to cremate the body. That is the next step. So the family actually watches the coffin get placed onto the tray and slid into the cremation chamber. But then they're going to leave, and you know the cremation is going to happen, which usually takes about two hours. can be less for a smaller person. But after the cremation is done, family's going to come back. And I th- this part is one of my... Well, it, it's hard to say this is my favorite part. <laughs> like the whole thing. I don't want to be morbid or anything, but I thought this was really interesting. Okay. So the crematory staff apparently often gives a guided tour of the bones. Because when they pull out the tray, it's not all just ash. There are bone fragments left in there that didn't burn completely, right? Yeah. So they're going to point out different bones of the body, and they'll point out effects of diseases or medicines on the bones. Like, oh, you know, this person had this disease, and you can see evidence of that in this bone. Or, oh, they took this medicine for like the second half of their life, and you can see the effects of that over here, you know? Interesting. Yeah. So So they're not done with the bones after just looking at them, are they? No, this is very important. And we mentioned this in the chopsticks episode. We did. The relatives are going to pick up the bone fragments out of the ashes using these special chopsticks, and they're going to put them into the urn. So if you listen to the chopsticks episode, you might remember that this is the only time it is acceptable for two people to hold the same object at the same time with their chopsticks. Yeah. I think I also mentioned that one of these chopsticks is bamboo and one is wood, specifically willow wood. And the idea behind that is that they represent the elements of fire and water and they create a bridge between this world and the next. Remember chopsticks, hashi, same word for bridge. So a lot of symbolism there. Mm-hmm. So you're going to pick up the bones. You got to start at the feet mm-hmm. and you work your way up to the head last so that the order they're stacked inside the urn is right way up for right. the way a human stands. Yeah, nobody wants to be stuck upside down in an urn forever. Yeah, that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah. And certain people might actually go for specific bones for good luck. For example, children might be encouraged to take bones from the head that could help you get smarter. Okay. Right? Or let's say you have like chronic leg pain. Maybe you'll you'll pick up the leg bone and put that in there. And then maybe your ancestor will like help you with your leg pain. There's also a very important neck bone 
apparently is the most important bone to look for because it's supposed to look like a seated Buddha. Interesting. Yeah. I'm assuming you're talking about the hyoid bone? I think so. I think that's what it was called. I'd never heard of that one before. Yeah. But now I know it looks like a Buddha. <laughs> yeah. A lot of little bones in the body. Yeah, A lot of are. names. Hard to keep track of them all. Yep. Don't know most of them. Yep. I know the phalanges. <laughs> oh, I, never mind. I'm not going to list out the bones that I know. <laughs> yeah. Let's skip that. Okay, so depending on local customs, there's some variation here, but you might either take the urn directly to the cemetery or you might bring that urn home and keep it until the 49th day. And hold on to that idea, the 49th day. That's going to come up again later. So you want to talk about graves and graveyards a little bit now? You know I do. So a typical Japanese grave is usually a family grave, a haka, consisting of a stone monument with a place for flowers, incense to burn, and water in front of the monument. And then there's a chamber or crypt underneath to put the ashes. Right. So you're not going to see like flat headstones like you would see in Western cemeteries. These monuments are pretty elaborate. They're big. I mean, they're not just for one person. They're holding the whole family, right? But there's kind of the main visual focus of the thing, I guess, is this stone column sort of sticking up out of the middle, right? Yeah. And the names of the deceased are usually engraved on the front of the monument. They might be on the left instead, or there might be a separate stone in front with the names engraved on it. I thought this was interesting. If a married person dies, but their spouse is still alive, the spouse's name might be engraved on that stone at the same time as the name of the deceased, but it'll be painted red. Yeah, I saw that too. Like to indicate that they're still alive. And then the red paint is removed when they die. Not sure where like red comes in as still alive. Yeah, that seems almost like a, an omen or something. You Maybe know? it's like red's a cancel color. So it's well, like you're dead if you're written on there and then you paint it over in red of like, they're not actually dead. Yeah, maybe. I wonder if there's any connection to the Shinto symbolism of the color red. Maybe, about that yeah. before, religious color. And as far as I understood that, there wasn't any like meaning in putting their name on there before they died. It's just cheaper to get it all engraved at once. I did see that it is cheaper, but I also saw that it was sort of considered a sign that they're waiting to follow their spouse into the grave. Like they're still connected to that person, you know? Okay. Okay. Maybe that's the reason they did that, or maybe that's the justification for doing it to save money. <laughs> Who knows? But <laughs> uh, it looked like that's not super common anymore either. That's yeah. something that might have died out a bit. So there's also something called a sotoba, where you're also going to see the name written. And these are really interesting. I kind of did a deep dive on these. Okay. Because I just, I don't know, they, they interested me. So Sotoba, there are these wooden boards that are placed on a stand next to or behind the grave. It's almost like, uh, no, it's like a long, thin, straight wooden board. If you look up pictures. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a six foot tall, two by four almost. Yeah, kind of like that. And these are so interesting, man. Get this. This is a Buddhist custom that goes all the way back to when the Buddha achieved enlightenment. How's that? 
Well, when Buddha achieved enlightenment, achieved nirvana, right? But his body was left behind on earth, deceased, you might say. Mm -hmm. And what they did with him was they stored his bones in something called a stupa, which was an elaborate tower that was used as his burial tomb. Okay? Okay. And that word stupa actually is where the name for these things, sotoba, came from, right? It's like a Japanese approximation of the word from India, right? Okay. So over the years, other important people were buried in similar structures. And when Buddhism got to China, those stupas are also where the idea of pagodas came from. Okay, okay. We haven't researched pagodas yet. Yeah. So I didn't know that. Yeah. I did see that they carve these sotoba into like five sections or subdivisions or yeah. however they call it. Yeah, I'm getting there. Okay, That's, okay. Yeah, the same sections as like a five-story pagoda, right? Yeah. Same symbolism. So, you know, like I said, important people were, were buried in these stupas, but the lower social classes had much smaller tombs, often made of stone. And these look a lot like the stone lanterns we talked about in the Japanese gardens episode. Mm. Do you remember we talked about those little lanterns and they have five sections, each one symbolizing a different element of Buddhist cosmology? Remember that? I remember the five sections. I didn't put it together with five-story pagodas at the time. Yeah. And so you got these five sections, earth, water, fire, wind, and void. And there's a different shape for each section that goes along with those elements. But of course, these days, like we said, they have these wooden boards. And those are divided into those five sections, just like the old stone ones, just like the five-story pagoda. So you got just so much history and so much Buddhist symbolism in these things. And it also brings in an element of Shinto. What's that? In Japan, when they started using these, it also serves as a yorishiro. Remember that word? No. Temples and Shrines episode, we talked about shrines. They have a yorishiro, the object that acts like a lightning rod for the kami. Okay. Right? Yeah. It's the object that the kami are living in. So this is an object to attract your ancestor's spirit back to the grave. Okay. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was so cool that this object blends traditions from the very origins of Buddhism in India, picked up some Chinese influence along the way, brought pagodas to Japan, and melded all of that with Japan's Shinto traditions. Pretty cool, right? It's very Japanese. Yeah. Did you talk about the inscriptions? Yeah, did I, did I say that they, they put the name on there? I don't recall. Oh, well, they do. And there's, there's other stuff that can show up on there, too. Yeah, sometimes parts of sutras i think they might even have characters on each of those five sections like showing the the element that it's connected to oh that's cool all right so now the deceased is laid to rest but there's still more mourning to be done yes and at this point there's kind of a lot of variation depending on local customs but they're going to be Memorial services, at least one, usually many more. Yeah, look like the seventh day after death was a common one. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the 49th day earlier. Yeah, that's when the urn is placed into the family crypt, if it hasn't already been. Mm-hmm. And there's a ceremony for that called no kotsu. 
And then there might also be other memorial services at various intervals. For example, 100 days later, 100 days after death, three years after death, seven years, 13 years. And apparently the reason for this is that in the Edo period, temples insisted that the souls of ancestors had to be worshipped at these times because they charged a lot of money for each memorial service. You know, we talked about how in the Edo period, Buddhism was kind of forced upon a lot of people and they, they had to support their local temple. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these temples might have started to get a little greedy, you know, finding justifications to ask people for more and more money. You build enough temples and the temples got to support themselves. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. And again, you know, people, it's sad, but it's apparently human nature. You know, it goes back millennia, probably people taking advantage of people at their weakest moment. Mm -hmm. Oh, your loved one died. Well, if you don't pay them the proper respect and give us the money to, to have us help you pay them respect, you're not doing your duty as their family member, you know? Yeah. It usually does end by either the 39th year or the 50th year after death, if not sooner. That's so many years. That's a lot of years. I mean, by the 50th year after death, how many people alive still remember you? Yeah. So also, after the body is, or the ashes are interred, if the family home has an altar, they may put a picture of the deceased person there. Mm Mm-hmm. Friends and relatives are informed that they should not send a New Year's card that year. Talked about that in our New Year's episode. Yep. You don't want to send or receive New Year's cards in the year after a close relative's death. Mm -hmm. And then in subsequent years, there are also memorial services held during the Obon Festival, which is a festival honoring your ancestors, welcoming them back home, hanging out with them for a while. Yeah. That's a cool festival, I think. Yeah. Totally. So we keep mentioning how expensive some of this stuff is. Mm -hmm. Lay down some of the numbers. What does this run you? All right. Well, first, let's start with the price of the average funeral. 2.31 million yen, which is about 25,000 US dollars. My jaw's hanging open. You can't see, but it is. I can confirm Paul's mouth is open right now. And that's actually apparently on the low end, it looks like. I mean, for for an average, anyway. (laughs) Another source said that the average is over 3 million yen, over 30,000 US dollars. So That's insane. Somewhere in that range is the average. And yeah, that's that's a lot. Wow. Yeah. And this this is kind of messed up and goes back to the point that I've been making over and over again. Since a lot of people are embarrassed to talk about money while they're grieving... A lot of people don't even find out the cost until it's all over. Right. They don't, it's not something they want to worry about. Yeah, it's like, just, just do it. I'll pay whatever. This is a really hard time. I just want to get through this, you know? And then a bill for $25,000 shows up. <laughs> yeah. It could be like that here too. Definitely. That's why a lot of people, if they want to get buried, try to buy their own burial plot like ahead of time to save their family from having to do that. Yeah. And why a lot of people... Get life insurance, yeah. you know, so they can get 10K or whatever to cover your funeral. Yeah. You know, since I'm talking into a microphone right now, and this is going to be out on the internet, I'm just going to say when I die, whoever ends up dealing with me, do whatever's cheapest. I really don't care. 
toss me over the side of a boat if you want to. I mean, you know, try to make it something legal. Whatever's legal and as cheap as possible, do that to me. I don't want to be a burden after I'm dead, you know? All right, if you die first, I'm going to dig a hole, roll you in it, and then I'm going to plant a tree, and I'll come sit under the tree and be like, thanks for the shade, buddy. I like it. And a single tear will roll down my face. (laughs) A single tear? Yep. I need more tears than that, Paul. But that's like every day. It's like a single tear every day. Okay, I can deal with that. All right. That'll work. Anyways. Anyways, (laughs) went off on a little tangent there. But okay, so, you know, that's the average funeral. I also saw that some funeral homes these days offer more competitive pricing. And you might be able to get away with spending only about 200,000 yen, which is about 2,000 US dollars. It's still a lot of money, but yeah, a lot less than 25 or 30,000. Yeah. We should socialize death. Yeah. I mean, it's something everybody does. Why do you got to pay when a loved one dies? Yeah. Like, can the government not just take care of that? Yeah. Like, at, at your worst moment, you got to deal with a bill. Yeah. I mean, nobody gets to avoid dying. It's something, it's a service we all will need eventually. Yeah, yeah why right? not just No one's everybody. using that more than anyone else. Right. You all use it once. Yeah. Some people just want to be fancier in death, I guess. <laughs> I need gold. I need to be surrounded in gold when I'm underground. Hey, you could opt out if you want to. Yeah. Of my fake system I just made up. <laughs> uh, I also saw that these days many people are going with order-made family funerals. This looked like a good idea to me. They have much smaller services. They take out the wake and all the rituals, and they just do a small service only for immediate family that's held in a, you know, a small space like an apartment. They come to you easy. You still get to be around your family and do all that family stuff without spending all the money. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're railing against the cost of this and stuff, but Don't get us wrong, like funerals are important, saying goodbye and being with your family and tough times like that are super important. Yes. It just shouldn't cost so dang much. Right. There's no reason to take advantage of people like that. Yeah. Okay, so we covered the cost of the funeral, but there are other costs involved. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) The extra fees. I mean, you need a place to rest your loved one for eternity, right? Yep. And funeral plots, pretty expensive too. They cost an average of 2 million yen. Oh, that's almost all. as much as the funeral itself. Yeah. That's like 20,000 US dollars. So by the end of this, you'd be like $100,000 in debt? Maybe. I mean, you yeah, could, maybe. sure. Yeah. All right. I mean, hopefully, if you're going in debt for it, you're not choosing to spend $100,000. You could find cheaper ways, but I'm sure it's happened. I suppose this is, I was thinking it's America. Nobody's just like sitting on $20,000 in America. Maybe in Japan, they actually have savings. Maybe. Um, But again, even for the funeral plots, there are other options. You don't need to spend the average amount, right? Yeah. So these days they have something called grave apartments. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Ohaka no Manshon. (laughs) Grave mansions. And these are... Basically, cemeteries inside buildings. You can buy just like a small grave, sort of. I mean, it's like a little locker kind of in this building. There's just a bunch of lockers in the wall. One of them's yours. Still about 400,000 yen, though. Yeah. It's like $4,000. Yeah. Fraction, but still Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And some of these places 
can be super like fancy and futuristic even. Some places will have touch screens. You can go in there and look up a picture and info about your, your deceased loved one. Yeah, it might display a family tree. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. I read an article about a specific place in Tokyo called Ruriden. So they have this futuristic cemetery in a building in the middle of Tokyo. You walk in and the walls are covered by these little Buddha statues lit up by LEDs. Like they look like little crystal Buddhas lit up in different colors. Okay. And each one represents a deceased person whose ashes are in a locker behind the wall. And when your loved one is interred there, you get a swipe card. So every time you go there, you just swipe your card and that specific Buddha for your loved one will light up to show you where it is. Pretty fancy. Yeah. And this one opened in 2006. It was the first of its kind. But a lot of other companies have have taken this idea and run with it. There are even places where you, you swipe your card or whatever, and they will automatically retrieve the appropriate urn of ashes and mount it on an altar for you. And then they'll have pictures of the deceased next to it. Like, you just swipe your card and then boom, you're looking at this altar with all the stuff you need. You well, know? that's efficient. Yeah. If people only come once or twice a year, you don't need an altar for every person. Mm-hmm. You just have one really nice altar and use it for everybody. Yeah. Okay. Smart. Yeah. yeah. Innovative. Yep. So if you would like to visit a cemetery in Japan, they are interesting places, but please keep in mind that these places are first for the deceased and their families so just remember to show proper respect don't just be running around snapping pictures i mean you can take pictures usually yeah they'll let you know or have signs if you can't yeah just remember where you are yeah it's kind of like being in a library like don't be boisterous don't be really loud Mm -hmm. you know that'll be could be rude to people that are there to mourn right so if you want specific cemeteries that might be good to visit. I would recommend Okunoin, which is the biggest and most famous cemetery in Japan, which I visited on my last trip. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like somewhere you've probably been. <laughs> it's so cool. Okunoin is the site of the mausoleum of Kobodaishi, also known as Kukai, the founder of Shingon Buddhism. Very revered person in Japanese religious history yep but seems like an amazing place it's like this really long like walk up to the mausoleum right yeah there's a very long path leading all the way through the cemetery and well there are actually multiple paths going through the cemetery but you know just surrounding the paths going pretty deep back into the woods like you can wander off to the sides these gravestones go way back and there's just tons of moss i mean some of these places are super super old it's a really beautiful and solemn place, you know? Yeah. I saw there were over 200,000 tombstones there. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people. Yep. And if you're going as a tourist, this is maybe one of the better choices because it's a major tourist attraction, even for Japanese people. Like, they have tours through the cemetery. You'll see Japanese tour groups. You don't need to worry as much about offending somebody, you know? Yeah. There's more modern areas of the cemetery, too. Mm-hmm. I yeah, saw, there's still people being buried there. Yeah. I saw there was a 
pest control company that bought a tombstone for all the termites they've murdered over the years. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's kind of funny, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, if you can read Japanese or if you know a lot about Japanese history, you'll see some prominent people in that cemetery besides Kobodaishi. Um, So that cemetery is located in Koyasan, which is a little temple town a little ways from Osaka. But if you're in Tokyo, there's a cemetery there, Aoyama Cemetery. I've also been there, much more accessible than Koyasan. If you want to see what traditional Japanese graves look like, that's a good example. Yeah, I remember walking through a cemetery years ago, the first time I was in Japan with my brother, Hmm. just at some random temple we were at, probably in Kyoto. Yeah, I've stumbled across a couple of them, like, accidentally. Yeah, you're just exploring the temple grounds, and it's like, oh, well, here's a graveyard. Yeah. So if this kind of stuff interests you, if you're weird and morbid like me, and you want to learn more about death customs, it's insane how much info is out there. Like, out of all the episodes we've researched, I think this is one of the ones that had the most info out there. Yeah, I didn't have to dig deep to, like, just have a bunch of sources. Yeah, like those Sotoba I was talking about, I just talked about like a few small things out of this super, super long article, like a website I found just talking all about this one specific item on a Japanese grave. Yeah. And every part of this whole process, you could really dig into each one. And there's so much out there to learn. So check that out if you're into it. Is it weird that I'm, I was so excited about this episode? <laughs> I mean, it's a serious topic, but it's fascinating. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting thing. It's something we're all going to have to deal with in our lives. Yeah. People die. It happens. It's a big, important part of our cultures. Yeah, yeah. We could get all philosophical and talk for a while about death and how <laughs> it's weird that <laughs> it's so taboo to talk about it when it's so inevitable and like a, a major part of life, you know? It's everywhere. What does that say about society? Oh, no way. We should. We, we can't go another hour here. It's another podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of the episode. If you want to see some pictures of Okunoin, the biggest cemetery in Japan, check out our Instagram, SJP Podcast. Want to reach out to us? Send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And Paul, what's our next episode going to be? On the next episode, we're actually going to be doing our first interview, and we're going to be talking with Simon and Moo, who run a family-run travel agency in Kyushu. Yeah. I think we're going to learn a lot about Kyushu and what there is to see and do. I'm sure we will. And before we go here, I just got to say, I know it's hot, Jason, Mm -hmm. but have you been sitting there in your boxers this whole time? These are not boxers, Paul. These are shorts. Did you get some short shorts I didn't know about? These are not short shorts. They're simply riding up. (laughs) Pretty far, bro. Pretty far. (laughs) Well, thanks for calling me out in front of everybody. That's nice. (laughs) At least they can't see. Yeah. I have to take a picture, post it on Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all I got. All right. Thanks for listening. See you next time.